Hi everyone, if you're looking for the Campaign Magazine's podcast, you've come to the right place. I'm Omar Oaks, Campaign's Media and Tech Editor. And I'm Brittany Kiefer, Campaign's Creativity and Culture Editor. Later in this episode, you can hear Brittany's interview with Niran Vinod and Demelo Timayin, the creative strategists and authors that have released the Marketing for Ordinary People guide, How to Build It, which is under Stormzy's publishing imprint, hashtag Murky Books. They get into how brands can market with purpose authentically, how the industry can make itself more attractive to talent, and what reception they've had to the book. So, Brittany, we're recording on Pancake Day, which some people like to call Shrove Tuesday. Um, Brittany, do you, do you get into pancakes? Uh, and if so, what's your favorite one? I love pancakes, Omar, but I'd be interested to know what you mean by pancakes, because I found in this country you mean something slightly different than my definition. Uh, oh, now I'm going to get into trouble because uh, I'm not the expert. Uh, well, in our house, we do crepes which are like really thin pancakes Mm -hmm. we do call them crepes um also uh you know my uh, i am half american myself and i would understand a pancake to be a much thicker thing like when you do like a blueberry pancake it's the kind of thicker buttermilk stuff yes that is a pancake omar it's a thick fluffy pancake that's what a pancake should be Uh, okay okay yeah i guess you know I'm not again. I'm not an expert. I don't know, but yeah, we do we do crepes. We do call them crepes, and so we put like ham and cheese, and then maybe like if we're feeling adventurous, try like a a crepe Suzette for dessert. <laughs> what, what what fillings do you go for? I like just a simple buttermilk pancake. Maybe some blueberries thrown in. Sometimes bananas are good. Maple we should syrup. have a spinoff. We should have a spinoff podcast about breakfast foods. <laughs> I I don't know if you've ever seen the show Parks and Recreation, but um, the main character Leslie Nope, she's like um, she's a gourmand of sorts, and she <laughs> she always says, "I don't understand why people don't have breakfast for every meal," and I'm totally on board with that. I could eat eggs and bacon and sausages and all that stuff for any meal, any time of the day. I agree. Good, we're agreed on that. Um, speaking of food and unusual eating habits uh let's talk about um our first ad well our first two ads we're actually going to do sort of together because it's very interesting indeed they both star the fried chicken og themselves kfc uh this first one is a collaboration between kfc and walkers the crisps brand um this is called it makes sense uh, it's been created in-house and it stars Walker's brand ambassador, Gary Lineker. Let's have a quick listen. KFC flavoured crisps. It's a no-brainer. So why did it take us so long? Sometimes, spotting something obvious takes a while. Even if it's something so blindingly clear. Um, so, WTF, this ad debuted on Saturday during the Masked Singer on ITV, and you will see it's up until April, they say, alongside Distractivity. Uh, it's created by Andrew Jordan and Alex King, directed by Rollo Jackson through some such. Brittany, what is going on with these two brands getting together? First of all, what if after every ad we talked about, we just said WTF and then we moved on? (laughs) Not every ad deserves a WTF, but this one very much does. This features Gary Lineker, who actually, uh, towards the end of the ad, actually um, uh, imagines himself as Colonel Sanders. And so they're launching this new, uh, this is to promote a new KFC flavoured crisp. And they say, why didn't we think of this before? This is such a great idea. Uh, is this usual for these two brands to 
to do this sort of thing? No, I mean, KFC definitely is known for its wacky marketing. So I think it the tone is definitely right for the brand. I do kind of agree that it makes sense for those two brands to come together. Apparently, there was some chatter online before this about how Gary Lineker kind of looks like Colonel Sanders. And I think that partly inspired the idea. <laughs> um, but I was wondering if there's something to the idea of, you know, it's so hard for brands to get attention, period. And, you know, a lot of people just tune out advertising. If you put two brands together where it kind of makes sense, does that give them a better chance of capturing attention? I don't know. What do you think, Omar? I think it's... I am going to answer that question. But before I do that, I want to bring in our second ad. Because this is not the only brand collaboration uh, that KFC is doing. They've also got together with Pizza Hut, we see. Uh, they've just um, we're recording this on Tuesday and they've just uh, launched this ad. Uh, pizza Hut KFC Popcorn Chicken Pizza. This one's created by Iris. Uh, let's have a quick listen and I will answer your question. Brace yourself, Internet. I'm about to show you a collab so mind-blowing it could possibly break you. Pizza Hut's KFC Popcorn Chicken Pizza. Pizza, yes. Pizza Hut and KFC together. Pizza Hut's KFC together. KFC Gravy Lip Gloss. So what's going on here? So Pizza Hut brand ambassador this time, Parker J. Patterson, um, he promotes KFC Popcorn Chicken Pizza, which is apparently so mind-blowing it could possibly break you. Um, this ad launched on Monday, and it's you know there's going to be all sorts of stuff on TikTok, Instagram. Uh, it was created by Lou Bogue and Robert Thornborough and directed by Clay Wiener through Biscuit Filmworks. So this is yet another two kind of... Uh, Walkers isn't a fast food brand, but they're both kind of snack, convenience, fast mm. food. Let's put them in the same bucket. If you uh, will. Pun intended. <laughs> yes, if you will. Uh, so you asked, does it make sense? Um, do, do do both brands win doing this? And I think it's, I think they can do, but I kind of liken it to when two companies merge. And we've had a lot of companies merge in the ad industry of the last few years. You, t- you tend to find that one brand ultimately wins out over another. I can't think from off the top of my head a successful merger in which two brands equally survive going forward. Mm. One always tends to dominate the other. Now, of course, you could say this is a one-off. It's a bit of fun. It's something different. Yes, all of that is true. But you just wonder whether... I'd, I don't know what the answer is at the outset, whether... KFC or these other brands get more out of it than KFC does do you th- do you think now KFC is doing a lot of interesting things as I said last week I'm considering doing this feature on gaming for the magazine I've been speaking to people about that and KFC actually has been mentioned as one brand that is doing has been doing actually quite interesting things in gaming for the last three or four years I didn't know that yeah and so there's definitely something happening with KFC where they you know I guess they've always been not afraid to be wacky in their marketing, um, agenda setting, loads of great work um, through Above the Line over the last few years. But actually, maybe what hasn't been talked about is this willingness to actually give up some brand equity um, to actually, why are they doing this? Because 
QSR, what we call fast food brands, it's much harder to reach target audiences of young people through traditional media, right? They ain't watching TV, they're not listening to the radio like right. older people are, et cetera, et cetera. We know that. So why are they doing this? They're going to where the young people are through gaming. They're doing more attention-grabbing things like, uh, you know, let's let's do a thing with walkers and mm-hmm. let's do a thing with Pizza Hut. Um very interesting and i wonder whether it's going to set the tone for this sector more generally whether you're going to see i'm not going to call it desperate i'm not going to call it but more but that's the wrong word i'm not i don't mean that i mean just more attempts to kind of um do to do things that are attention grabbing i don't know what you think yeah i agree i think you they have to keep pushing it forward they can't rest on their laurels of being a brand that is that stands out that does good marketing um, they've they've always been really creative, and I think they've done some great stuff. And they'll we'll have to watch and see. My mother in law, by the way, loves KFC. It's her it's her seventieth birthday this week, and she's celebrating with some KFC. I, That's I, touching. <laughs> I, I kid you not. I kid you not. She loves it. And Maybe also, she should be a brand ambassador for well, KFC. Well, you know what? She 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 loves Gary Lineker as well because um her um her son my brother-in-law um he 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 was in the hospital when he was a little kid he's fine now um but at the same time gary lineker's young son was in the hospital at the same time and apparently he was very nice very nice man well this ad will really speak to her then yes now halifax has brought out a new ad and this is an interesting one because it's the first well two reasons it's a new brand platform number one but also because it's the first work by new commercial arts the relatively new agency uh founded by james murphy recently on the podcast and david golding uh let's have a quick listen to this it's called it's a people thing for the ups the downs and everything in between halifax it's a people thing so what's going on here? This ad takes a bird's eye look through different homes on a typical British road. And by the way, you can see all these ads on campaignlive.co.uk. Um, so it's a typical British road and it shows the highs and lows of life before ending with a friendly Halifax employee entering a high street branch. Written by Lorelei Sessions, art directed by Charlotte Prince and directed by 32 through Pulse Films. Brittany, what do you think of this? Well, it's a nice film and um, looks like it, you know, a lot of work went into it. And I know it's really difficult to get any campaigns out during lockdown. Um, I think the creative team behind it, they're very talented. They're ones to watch. I'm sure um, a lots of agencies will be trying to poach them, not just because of NCA, but the work they did at Leo Burnett before they joined. They're really great. Um, I also love the work of the directors, 32. They've been on our list of top directors over the past couple of years. They've done stuff like the Saints Race Christmas campaign in 2020, um, the Department for Education work, which was really lovely. Now, this ad, I guess my one um, question over it is, is this distinctly Halifax? Because I've watched it a few times and I've thought this could kind of be tagged along with quite a few brands like it's a very, it feels like a very british heartwarming ad but what about it makes it a halifax ad and i think the other thing with banks it can be quite tricky um to do this kind of advertising that's very emotional and sometimes it feels like there's um banks have to work a bit harder to to garner sympathy or like win the hearts and minds of consumers that there's still kind of um 
this ill will towards a lot of financial services brands, I think. And for the traditional banks, um, they do have to be a bit careful when they're making these kinds of ads, I think, so that it doesn't feel disingenuous. So you said, so the, the, the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, that was, feels like a really long time ago now. Do you think there's still this legacy of consumers not really trusting banks and maybe the marketing is, it, it leans so much on, you know, we're there for you, that sort of thing? I do think that that still lingers. And I also think you have ch- these challenger banks like Monzo or Starling Bank where people are starting to move towards some of those platforms and so the banks like you know Halifax HSBC others they they do have to work harder to to keep those customers I have to be honest I mean with the with the main banks I moved banks a couple of uh, years ago and it was a, it's really easy because all you have to do is say that you're moving and you don't have to tell your employer anything all your kind of direct debits they just change automatically and I can tell you I only did that because I got like an introductory gift. Yeah. And I'll probably move banks again in a couple of years because someone else is going to give me a gift. Like why? I don't feel, I don't understand why I should have any brand loyalty. I don't see what pulls me into these different things. Mm. I know quite a few people actually who that's their approach is when they get an offer, they switch banks and that's it. Yeah, I don't. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't feel any, anything particular either way towards a bank. It's, it's a utility. I need it. Right. But, you know, they, they just seem quite interchangeable, I guess. Um, and it's, in, it's going to be an interesting one where you have the traditional ones versus the challengers, as you say, who are willing to kind of be a bit more edgy, I suppose, in their marketing. And is the dynamic going to be anything more interesting that I don't know? Um, but I think there's an opportunity there. I'm wi- I'm willing to be seduced, is what I'm saying. Banks, come woo me. <laughs> well, I have been wooed by Monzo, and I think that banks like Monzo are that are challengers. They have kind of disrupted this the traditional banking process, where that did feel very you know tricky and annoying to navigate previously. And so I think if you're gonna if you're going to be competing with Monzo and the and the its competitors in that space, you need to do something different. I think with your marketing that isn't just about a, creating a traditional emotive ad. I think you need to speak to a wider range of customers with that. Mm, maybe they should uh, do a brand mashup with KFC. <laughs> <laughs> Why are just we so, not why are we not creative directors? We're so good at coming up with ideas. I know, I know. It's amazing that we haven't been hired by anyone, but uh, never mind. <laughs> uh uh Lloyd's Banking Group's Halifax, of course, massive fans of new commercial arts. Uh, uh they James Murphy and David Golding, of course, founded Adam and Eve, which became Adam and Eve DDB, and Halifax was uh there was it their first clients or among one of their first clients when they opened that agency as well? So they are definitely fans. Um, good for them. Now, we can't get away. Uh, I can't let you go, Brittany, without talking a bit about Valentine's Day. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> everyone feels the love in the air during lockdown. Um, let's talk about one ad in particular that caught our collective eye. This is by the online mortgage company Habito. Uh, this is called The Road to Completion by Uncommon. Uh, no clip, uh, but it's what's going on here. They, um, they've they enlisted Rocky Flintstone. Uh, in your podcast listeners will know him from My Dad Wrote a Porno. He, he 
wrote the porno he's the dad and he penned an erotic novel for habito ahead of valentine's day um, why are they doing this they're doing it to reignite intimacy among couples who are stressed out during the home buying process um do you want do you want to read some of it Brittany, or should we should we leave that to the imagination not really i think we should let listeners go seek it out themselves yeah um this 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 podcast is far too explicit already uh <laughs> just you know it, it follows first time buyers sylvia and thomas explore mortgage deals uh potential houses and each other's bodies giving new meaning to the phrase property porn uh work created by nina myers and tom espizal and good stuff is the media agency um so Brittany, generally what do you think about valentine's day ads do you love them hate them don't care what there's not a lot of good Valentine's Day ads. I thought this Why was... is that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe uh it's hard to do something that's not cliche. Um but we'll give it give you this habito. It's not this is not cliche. Creating an erotic novel for about mortgages. I haven't I can't think of anything else like that. Yes, uh, it includes some um, suggested imagery created by the Munich-based illustrator Sebastian Schwamm. Uh, and this imagery includes phallic cacti, protruding nibble-shaped flowers, and seductive keyhole openings. Um, it sounds very secure indeed. Uh, and of course, it's not the first time that Habito has ventured into the erotic. Last year, oh, sorry, in 2019, two years ago, it ran a campaign inspired by the Kama Sutra, which translated financial jargon through sexual illustrations um yeah i mean i guess sex sells is what they say um just um yeah i don't have a lot to say about I it like really. the, it's I, fun. Like the, <laughs> I like the art direction on this campaign a lot is that is that by uncommon do they do that yeah and they worked with this the illustrator who you mentioned a german illustrator i have to say will i be going to download this erotic novel probably not but it did get my attention that they've done it Yes. Okay, Brittany. Um, as I said, uh, all these ads are available for your viewing pleasure or displeasure at campaignlive.co.uk, where you can read the latest stories we've done as well. Um, I've done an analysis this week on the big tech companies, for example, and how, with the exception of Facebook, um, they all significantly reduced their advertising and marketing spend last year. Uh, and go to campaignlive.co.uk. Uh, to find out why that was i'm now going to throw it to your interview Brittany, um with niran and demola hi everyone i'm here today with niran vanad co-founder and creative partner of deft and demola tamayan the global creative strategist at facebook and instagram Niran and Damola are authors of their recent book, How to Build It, which is part of the how-to series published by Murky Books, the publishing imprint founded by Stormzy and Penguin Random House UK. Both of them have worked with brands including Nike, Tesco, Weedabix, and Clarks, among others. And How to Build It breaks down the principles of brand building with really simple and clear advice. They said of their motivation for writing the book, It's about time that advice normally reserved for the meeting rooms of ad agencies and marketing departments is decoded and made available to people who wouldn't otherwise have access to these places. So welcome, Niran and Damola. How are you both? Good, thanks. Awesome. And thank you for for having us, actually. Well, we're speaking during the third lockdown, and I know it's been a few months since the book came out, but how has the reception been since you published it? Um, how has it been going releasing a book into a global pandemic? 
<laughs> well, I mean, uh, the, the, the context of a global pandemic makes uh, book launch kind of interesting. But um, fortunately, the the feedback uh, from friends, family and strangers, I guess, have has been actually really, really positive. And, um, you know, sometimes you can't help but to go on to a, a Goodreads or an Amazon to look at if anyone's reviewed, reviewed the books. And um, the feedback there has been really good as well. That's great. Well, I I love the book. I read it a few months ago, and I thought that it really broke down some of these big ideas about brand building that might have seemed kind of elusive to people and really clear language. Was that your original motivation for writing the book, or where did that idea come about? Taking it all the way back to last January, Lamara, who's a commissioning editor at Murky, reached out to me in an email and said, Hey, we're thinking about doing the series. We want a book on brand building. Would you be interested in being the author? And I was like, me, author? Did not see that coming ever. <laughs> um, but then I knew straight away, I don't even want to write it if I get to do it with a friend. And I guess brand building and advertising is our bread and butter. And Demolo was the first person and the only person I had in mind. So I think I texted him saying, hey, you got time for a call later? It's about murky. I remember getting that message actually. I was like, what the? I was, actually, I was sat at my desk writing a deck for a client. Got the text. I was like, what, what, is, what is he? What's this? Like, what, what, what's, what's this about murky? Obviously, you see that, that name, you're like, okay, uh, interesting. Um, yeah, then had the call with Niran. It was great. And I, I, like, I'm totally grateful for Niran to extending that, that invitation to uh, co author the book with him because. I think this is one of the the only books in the series of six that is um, co-written. So Niram was very generous to extend that, that invitation my way. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of marketing books out there, but I was really struck by when you said that this is about kind of decoding that advice that would normally be in just in the boardroom. Did you think that there is a place for a book like this to speak to kind of a new generation of people who might be trying to build a brand? Yeah, like, so I remember when when I first started in, in the industry, everyone would tell me to go read Malcolm Gladwell. And I personally haven't really read any other marketing books since then, because they all look the same to me. It's quite corporate-y. Yeah. Um, and Murky's proposition of the series was just breaking down information for a new audience and what they stand for is underrepresented voices and for their communities um, and that's exactly what we wanted to do like we've been in the industry for a while now and this is one way of throwing down the ladder and sharing what we've learned mm. how did you both get into the industry did you find that um it was a, a traditional path or were there any challenges along the way to learn what you've learned i think everyone's path is different um particularly in advertising uh, when you come from our backgrounds. But uh, me personally, I, I was a banker before I even considered a career in, in marketing um, or advertising and um, had started out as a, as a banker, left it because I hated that game and really enjoyed the idea of communications and, uh, and marketing. So meandered my way through uh, through into uh, the the industry and um, found myself first at an agency called A Thousand Heads, then um, at an agency called Dare, uh, left for a short period of time and then came back to advertising actually. Um, it seduced me back and I ended up 
uh, finally before leaving for Facebook at an agency called BBH. So it was essentially by accident. I think every step I've taken, I've kind of learned a bit more about the industry and where I wanted to be within it and tried to find myself in, in, in those places. So I think um, for me, it was just a matter of, you know, getting in, learning a bit more, figuring out where the doors were and trying to open them more to find people who could open them for me. And that, that seems to have worked out reasonably well so far. What about you, Nier? Yeah, I'd say mine is it's traditional in one sense and also non-traditional. I went to study game design at university first time. I assumed, because I taught myself design when I was, I was just a nerdy kid. Um, so did a lot of Photoshop tutorials and I figured the next step in my passion would be learning how to make games. Um, and I just didn't enjoy it. So I dropped out and I just continued designing. And I, my parents being Indian, education comes first. You have to get a degree. So I figured I'd go and study advertising because I already know design. I had no idea how the industry worked. I signed up for a short course at CSM, then did a degree in creative advertising strategy, which is weirdly close to my last title. Um, and I, I was naive. I had no contacts in the industry, no such thing as an as a network. I signed up to, well, actually, I started a blog in my second year of university, and it was called Yin and Yang. I had no idea what content was or influences. I was Yin. My best friend at uni was Yang, and we just started posting about things we liked. And over time, we amassed a following. Brand started reaching out to us. It built up our network, and building that network was actually the way we got into the industry. Um, I, I got headhunted before I finished uni to a small agency called IUHQ and the rest was sort of history and I had opportunities for internships thanks to the thanks to the blog. Otherwise, I don't know how it would have gotten in because university had no links. My family had no connections. I couldn't tell, ask my dad to introduce me to a friend to get for like a week placement like a lot of people do. Yeah. So while speaking of that network, you talk about in the book about this idea of finding your iron. So someone who sharpens you and kind of pushes you to, to be better. Um, do you think that, I mean, we're in this age now where people are working remotely. Social connections are really hard to make, actually. You're, you can't get out there at, you know, to events. You're not in the office meeting people. How do you find your iron, that person who can build you up and can help you propel your career when we're in this more isolated age? I, th I think that whilst there are challenges, um, it's not as difficult as it may seem um, in that we have the internet. Niran and I actually met on Twitter um, many, many moons ago. Um, and that was through a kind of mutual appreciation for photography but particularly my appreciation for the photography that Niran took and the project that I was working on at the time so in in, in that respect um, we have an incredible kind of tool at our fingertips which is you know the internet and you know the various ways in which we can communicate with each other on it and I, I would encourage people to you know find their ways into the networks um, and kind of the, the circles uh, where the kind of people who you think can help or share a passion or an interest with you are and communicating with those people. You, you, you may find that you, you know, build a rapport, you build a relationship and eventually uh, develop a friendship that could in some way 
kind of enlighten you, teach you, lead you into rooms that you wouldn't otherwise have, have, mm-hmm. have been in. So in a way, maybe it's a little less intimidating if you don't have to, you don't have to like walk up to that creative director in the office. You can just maybe send them an email or send them a, I don't know, another kind of message. But what, I mean, do you have any tips for doing that? Like making connections online? Cause we all get so many emails and we're flooded with stuff on our timelines. Like how, how do you approach someone that way? Be human and be mindful of people's time. Um, I actually do think it's probably easier to reach out to people nowadays than ever before. Everyone's always online um, and people have time back from commuting. So I'd imagine some people have a little bit more time on their hands. Um, LinkedIn and Twitter are great platforms. I would, because of the yin and yang, I'd say I met most of my inner circle of friends actually through the internet, especially Twitter. In fact, the way you even started talking to my now wife is was initially through twitter so if you yeah so in terms of jobs and people that you look up to in roles that you want to be in i just drop them a message and nine out of ten times you might not get a response that people might reject you but that one person that responds could change your life even if it's just a bit of advice or you build up a friendship and they refer you for a role at some point or even hire you um and it also builds up your resilience towards rejection too. Um, and I know the job hunt and getting rejected or getting no responses, it's a tough, it's tough and it's a muscle that you can develop over time. So when you two came together to talk about, you know, what, what you're going to write about for this book, I imagine, and you got, do you do go into this in the book, but one of the big terms that have, you know, come around in the past few years is brand purpose. And that's been quite trendy, you know, talking about building your purpose as a brand. But when you wanted to write about this in the book, how did you approach it? What do you actually think of that idea of brand purpose? Like, what does that mean? Why is it important? And and does it actually um, make a difference? Hmm, That's a good question. Um, I think brand purpose specifically, it's been a term that has, I guess, caused some controversy within the industry. Um, I certainly know the kind of planosphere, um, you know, have a lot to say about the idea of brand purpose. Um, And it's certainly something that, you know, brands and marketers talk about more now than than ever. Um, But in terms of how we got to, you know, what we wanted to talk about around it in the book, I think it was about trying to communicate that idea in the simplest way possible for people who are coming to it for the first time, um, not to necessarily make it out to be as grandiose as, um, you know, some people that talk about it tend to. Um, ultimately, you know, the, the idea of purpose is, you know, the reason to exist beyond, um, you know, making money um, and I think there are lots of ways in which people can um, think about that. But, you know, what's most important, and I think this comes across in the book, is um, the idea that, you know, what you say about your purpose is far less important um, than what you actually do as a brand and a business, like how you actually behave. Um, and I guess what uh, we've seen in in the kind of marketing world and with brands 
is that you know purpose has been um a you know in some cases a marketing tool or exercise mm-hmm. um but when you scratch away you know scratch away that veneer what lies beneath is not necessarily um particularly attractive and that's where it can kind of come undone and i really like what um uh, Patagonia say about uh, purpose which is um, you can't use marketing to kind of reverse into or you can't reverse into purpose through marketing mm. which is which is a really great way to think about it you know marketing isn't necessarily going to be the thing that um, really uh, makes the idea of purpose within the organization successful it's just one of the ways in which it manifests and not necessarily the most important way. But the idea that you can't uh, reverse into purpose through marketing is one that I think um, everyone should, you know, bear in mind when they're when they're exploring, you know, the, the, the idea of brand purpose for, for, for the brands that they're working for or with. Mm, definitely. I mean, Patagonia comes up a lot, but can you think of any other examples of brands that are doing this authentically where purpose is just kind of built into their DNA? I mean, painter jackets is one that I think, you know, appears to have um, a purpose that is kind of manifested through how it behaves, how it produces what it does and how it, how it communicates. Actually, Nir, I should be talking about painter. Nir, Niran knows them very well and personally, so, <laughs> so he can speak to this probably with more authority. Yeah, they, they only do pre-order sales, so it's, zero, it's absolutely zero waste. And they share where they get every, get everything manufactured and share the process, so everything's super transparent. Um, there's another brand in the US called Everlane. They're very transparent about how they manufacture things and also people people know the markup they give as well. And I think there's a lot of these new new age direct-to-consumer brands that are definitely a lot more transparent and sustainable and people are starting to care about that a lot more, which is great. Um, there's brands like Girlfriend Collective, this one called I, I I'm not sure if I pronounce it right Pangea Pangea, um and they do a lot of things around taking plastic bottles and creating their clothing in new manufacturing ways instead of using polyester. Well, another thing that's become trendy to say is that advertising should be making culture, but in the book you talk about how a lot of brands can become culture vultures, which is you know the opposite of what should be doing is it the job of advertising to make culture like can you kind of unpick that for me what do you think that advertising's role in culture should be well i think well people make culture you know pe- people are the, the 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 things that define and, and and make culture what it is i think advertising has a power to influence culture or to embed itself the artifacts of 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 marketing and advertising can you know find their way into culture so for example um mr ozio i'm aging myself now but um you know that that was a a puppet um that was featured in a levi's ad um and um was a kind of pseudonym or character for an actual uh, musician that musician released um, the single that was in the ad. Um, I'm not going to attempt to 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 sing it or whatever. It's just a beep. Do 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 do
I mean, I, I, I do that just. To, I, I'm sure both of you recognise that that beat, even though mm. I've kind of hummed it terribly. But you know that was first featured in a in an ad um, that ended up on the charts and had people my age at the time. I think I was probably about ten. Um, you know, singing this song, and that's an ex- a great example of you know an av- advertising artifact, the ad kind of influencing popular culture um but i'm a true believer that it's people and communities that really you know build and define cultures and you know advertising can you know take inspiration from those cultures and incorporate into the advertising so when the when the culture and the advertising meets it's 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 met harmoniously um and i think that is a really um effective way of kind of using advertising and culture and bringing them to, to together um but it, i think it's really rare for for advertising um to really define and build culture and actually quite arrogant in many ways of um you know the people that create the work that we create to think that they can you know create a culture just through marketing and advertising alone yeah, I mean, so often to me, it feels like they're just advertisers just kind of jump on culture that already exists. Like, I think the first time I spoke to both of you, I used the example of a few years ago, I suddenly noticed quite a few brands doing campaigns about grime, like using a grime artist and HSBC even had an ad with a grime artist in it and it just it can feel quite cringe like they've just woken up to oh grime's cool let's do an ad about this like I can't think of many examples recently where advertising truly has created culture can you oh I remember I I've got an example okay and it's not necessarily a good example either (laughs) (laughs) I think I know where you're going I well actually I'll tell you what this is and then Nira you can tell me what you were thinking I was going to say because this this is another old one from um I guess the early 90s but it's um you know when you've been tangoed yeah and the and and the tango man slapping people and I guess that was a you know the 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 offspring of that were, were, were happy slaps where people were going around slapping people around the face in public and in buses <laughs> and things like that. But, you know, that was creating a culture of slapping people. I don't know whether that's a good or bad thing. <laughs> but the idea of, you know, and you've been tango, bang, slap around the face, that, I guess, was an interesting example of advertising kind of finding its way into um, an element of, of culture. But, you know, that 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 is like an atom when you think about what, culture is as a kind of universe it's a tiny that that is a tiny tiny thing Nero what did you think I was talking about what what do you think I was going to say I don't well when you said um one that didn't do too well I I expected more recent years so (laughs) I was going to think of Pepsi Pepsi um which is like a catastrophic example of how things can go wrong. What, like the Kendall Jenner ad, you mean? Yeah, yeah, that one. Um, when he was trying to do civil rights action and how a Pepsi, a Pepsi can stop that, um, stop racism. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, um, Pepsi. And that's, again, the arrogance of thinking advertising can create culture mm. and also almost culture altering. I, I, that grime example is perfect because I've been in many briefs, uh, brainstorm rooms where 
I was like, oh, Stormzy's really cool. Uh, we should use him. Or the, <laughs> in, insert the latest rapper that's blowing up. We should yeah. use him. But there's no actual connection to the brand whatsoever. Yeah, that's, yeah, totally. That's me and actually, when you mentioned that Pepsi one, Niran, you know what I think actually happen could in could happen in terms of culture. I think advertising is quite effective at creating meme culture. When you think about that Pepsi example, that was that that essentially became a meme, um, and so advertising can fuel meme culture again that doesn't necessarily seem that positive for the brand but there's another way in which you know brands advertising marketing can infiltrate culture perhaps in the wrong way and the, and the funny thing is when you mention meme i actually have that gif of kendall giving the pepsi can as my end slide to a lot of presentations <laughs> i do because it's just a nice way to end everything and everyone's laughing <laughs> So they ha they have made an impact, but probably not for the reason they thought. Exactly. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, another idea you explore in the book, which I really resonated with, was this. Um, you you talk about living in the era of hustle porn and how we kind of glorify being busy and um, the lines between you know our work life balance are blurring, which I've heard from a lot of people is is actually getting worse during COVID because if we're working from home, it's quite difficult to kind of turn off and draw these boundaries between our work and our home lives. Do you find that, um, you know, during this era of working remotely, how is your work-life balance? Do you think that workplace culture is changing for the better or the worse because of COVID? Uh, it's a really tough one. Um, I think we're, st we're still figuring out. I personally don't think work-life balance exists. Like it's an unattainable goal. Every day you can try to be better and work better at it. Um, I, I'm a person who had a very strict routine before lockdown and COVID happened. I get up really early, commute really early before at ungodly hours so I can work out and then leave the office early. And then in lockdown, with the, having to parent and work at home, everything sort of went up in the air. Mm. And early on, I was like, you know what? It's going to go back to normal soon. I was quite naive. I didn't really have a routine. And then this year, I, I made it one of my goals to get back into a quite strict routine, even if I'm at home. And that's really helped balance things out. I, I have a strict cutoff point in the evening, so nothing past six, ideally. doesn't always work out that way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you might have to pick up a bit of work later on if both me and my wife are working and we have to parent at the same time. Um yeah, I think it's it's all about creating healthier habits and creating me time as well. I think the me time part is particularly important, especially when you're stuck at home for most of the time and you don't, you might not even have the space to have some me time, even, even if it just means taking more audio calls and going out for a walk while you do it. I, I envy Niran. He's got incredible discipline. I, I do not have that at all. But um, I... I was reflecting on this um, work-life balance thing a couple of weeks ago to watching my mother work from home and um, it was it was odd because one I hadn't been home for a very long time for any prolonged period and I happened to, to be there for lockdown three um, and what I noticed was you know she was starting work incredibly early and she'd finish work incredibly late um, and then 
you know, continue doing the things that she would normally do, um, you know, with um, and around the family. And it made me realise that actually I was, um, you know, quite lucky in comparison in that um, I had become quite accustomed to, you know, working, either working remotely or, um, you know, working asynchronously, using emails, doing video calls way before the pandemic happened. And I think where people have had to adjust to, you know, this way of working or organisations have adjusted to this way of working, they've not yet established the boundaries that, you know, some of us who had worked in that way before had already established. And so without without those things, you know, work started to, work seems to start when you wake and finish when you sleep. Mm. And, you know, people who, who are, you know, working in this way for the first time, will inevitably take a little bit longer to find that that balance that Niran um, is talking about. Um, and with respect to hustle culture, I think lockdown or the, the continuous lockdowns maybe perpetuates that because you suddenly find yourself with pockets of time where you think, oh, maybe I can, you know, fill that pocket of time with, you know, stuff, whatever that might be whether it's pet projects, side business or whatever, instead of using that time to rest and maybe using those, you know, pockets that we used to have, um, like getting on the tube, where in my case I would sleep or, you know, people would read a book or play a game. Like, we're not using those pockets of time anymore. We're just doing stuff to make <laughs> us feel productive in those pockets and those pockets were super valuable. Yeah, I think we underestimate how valuable those pockets of time were. Completely agree there. I think it's different for everyone. Everyone has their own circumstances. Well, sadly, online, there's this whole thing of, especially at the end of the year, everyone's reflecting on their year and posting their achievements. And that just generates, like, make, stresses people out. Like, I haven't achieved enough. Um, I, actually, there's a particular quote. I just went on my Instagram stories archive to find it. It was Diddy that posted it. If 2020 didn't bring out the hustle out of you, it ain't in you. And that just pissed me off because I kept seeing people repost that throughout the day. While the year may have been great for people like him financially, and he's sitting in a mansion tweeting, posting yeah. this, the hustle porn takes are so tone deaf. Like so many people have, are fighting hard to survive, make ends meet. So many people are grieving. Um, many are jobless and will probably become jobless because of the pandemic recession. Um, it's just like wisdom requires considerations of other people and their perspectives. And that's why that's the whole hustle porn internet culture. And I think there's so much noise out there because of social and even like new platforms like Clubhouse. If you go on there, it's just full of wannabe life coach and business <laughs> advisors everyone starts up yeah. a millionaire and, and, and they're trying to get you to like take this advice five steps to become <laughs> like, when do you, when do you st switch off and be still if only it were that easy five steps to being a millionaire <laughs> um well another thing that made a lot of noise last year but definitely the industry was late to this was um, talking about making work that was more representative of diverse audiences. And of course, that's really core to Murky Books mission and part of what, you know, their publishing is trying to do. But as you know, I've 
you've both been in the industry for a while. What do you think of, of this? Like, how is the industry actually doing at making work that truly represents all people, not just a very small target audience? Mm, I think there's an analysis of last week's Super Bowl ads and it showed very little change. I think there's a lot of talk in this industry um, and it's exhausting as a person of color, whatever you want to call me. Um, it's I've been in the game for about 10 years now and it's been a conversation that's just increased over the years and I've seen very little change. What needs to change? Hire people, hire more diverse people and promote them and give them a voice at the table. I think a lot of the times it's kickboxing and getting getting people in at junior levels but then not actually helping them feel included and allowing them to bring through their voice and narratives new narratives into the work that we create what do you think Tamola? um i'm kind of just sitting here pondering that question because um i'm sure there are a lot of people trying to make things better both people of color and not um ha- has has anything changed i guess we will see it's probably you know discrimination prejudice racism all of those things have kind of been established over centuries i i doubt we'll see any significant change in less than a year since you know i guess the mainstream started paying attention to the problem so my expectations are incredibly low when it comes to evidence of of change um the proof will be in a pudding that will take hours and hours and hours and hours and hours days years month you know to 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 cook so i guess my answer to that question is i don't know let's see and i I think just on 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 this point or a related point is that i guess you know people of color um a bit tired it's exhausting like just thinking of thinking about the subject is exhausting because suddenly a year of being reminded of the problems whilst you're trying to do your job, whilst you're also trying to change the industry, whilst you're also trying to survive a, a global pandemic, mm. um, is all of those things is just pretty knackering. So, um, you know, change is also going to be slow because of that because you know some of us would just go right we just need to take a take a beat take a moment to breathe and then get back to it yeah well one thing that I love about your book is that it does make this whole world kind of more accessible to people and even if you didn't grow up knowing that advertising was a job that you could have or if you didn't study it at university or know anyone who worked at an agency you can still pick up these principles and maybe enter that world yourself but do you think that this industry is still doing a good job at attracting the best talent or do you think that young people coming up are maybe more attracted to other other industries if i was 20 years younger i would i would be looking at being a a game developer or working for maybe not an advertising agency i mean when i was younger i i didn't want to work in advertising in the first place so i don't think it's it's necessarily doing what it needs to do to attract um 
creative talent, especially when there are more options um, available to young people these days. I, I think it, it certainly needs to work harder on that front. How so? In, in terms of what they need to do, um, I, I think that advertising as an industry is bad at doing what it does for the brands it represents. Yeah. Um, you, you know, like, how good are, or is this industry at raising awareness of, you know, what it does to the audience that will be coming into the industry after us? Mm, I that's would interesting. argue very poor. Um, so I think if we applied the same, if we applied the same principles to, um, yeah, apply the same principles that we apply to brands that we're working on to the industry and focus it on making this a more attractive industry to, to a younger generation, then, then we'd we'll, we'll be doing quite well. But at the moment, I don't really see that. So um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work to do. I don't know many people, young people, who go, oh yeah, I really want to work in advertising. They probably want to be a YouTube YouTuber or influencer. Yeah. That looks more fun, more creative. They're probably going, I want to be my own boss and I'm going to create my own videos and I want to start my own thing. It's an interesting one. I, um, I definitely think it's an awareness thing. Like if you ask me 15 years ago, would I work in advertising? I'd be like, what's that? I had no idea this industry existed. I think now because of the internet, young folks are way more clued up on what career options are out there. And I do think advertising is being forced to change more. Um, with the emergence of tech platforms, hiring creatives and other new studio business models coming up, agents, the bigger agencies are being forced to change their culture and people want better work-life balance, better pay and better perks. So I think in that sense, it's got to revisit business models. And I think even COVID has actually probably enhanced people's work life or the way they work even, um, especially if you're introverted like me and enjoys being at home. Well, Niran, you started your own business a few months ago. So was part of that motivation from also finding you know, these business models weren't maybe working for you? No, I, I mean, I loved working at Facebook and Instagram for five years. It was actually a, a massive difference from working in agencies, A, from work-life balance, but also th the way they think about all of that. Like, I four months paternity leave, which was pretty, it was standard, which was, like, mind-blowing to me. It didn't I didn't know that kind of thing existed before I joined tech companies. So to leave that, it was more of a decision that I felt like I maxed out on my learning and it was time for to step out and take a risk in the middle of a pandemic and recession, which is a different story. <laughs> um, but I feel very, very privileged to be able to do that. Well, Niran and Damola, I think we're running out of time. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find both of you and your book? The book is available in all reputable bookstores across the country it's on amazon and anywhere else um, that you can buy books on the internet um, and you can find me at demola on twitter or at demola underscore t on instagram you can find me on twitter niran vinod or on instagram at niran well that's the show thank you for listening dear listener wherever you are 
Thanks to Niran Vinod, Damola Tameyan and Brittany Kiefer for joining me on this week's episode. And this episode of the Campaign Podcast was edited by Lindsay Riley. Campaign Magazine can be, of course, be found online at campaignlive.co.uk. And if you're a first-time listener, please subscribe, leave a review. We'd love to get your feedback too, the bad, good and the rest. So please email us at campaign at haymarket.com. Just remember to put podcast in the subject line. Until next week, goodbye and I hope you can join us again.